like to say good morning to you all. Certainly glad to have you here today, participating in the assembly, the saints here at La Prada. For those who are visiting, we certainly appreciate your presence. I know there's a plenty of places you could have been, but you've chosen to be here today. For that, we're appreciative. Brother Brock, appreciate your prayers on my behalf as a speaker. Appreciate your prayers on behalf of the congregation, those of us as hearers of God's word, that we may hear the truth and embrace it and be ready and willing to change. This morning's message is a study on the subject of benevolence. This lesson is the result of a personal study as I wanted to better understand this subject. I wanted to ensure my understanding was based on scripture and ensure that I was practicing benevolence properly in the sight of God. So I hope that this message is beneficial to you and profitable for you today. The English word benevolence is only used once in the whole Bible, at least in the King James Version. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. And it says, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. In this passage, the context is marriage and avoiding fornication. The definition of benevolence in this passage is to owe or be obligated to. And this passage is teaching about the sexual responsibility that husbands and wives have towards one another. It's not quite the definition we plan to look at today. The word benevolence comes from two Latin words, bene and volent. Bene meaning well, and volent meaning wish. So when combined, these two words mean well-wishing or goodwill. So now, form we have the word benevolence, which is a kind or charitable act. In an adjective form, we have phrases like benevolent works or benevolent actions. So we can describe benevolent works in this way. Someone has a need and a desire to be kind or do good towards them. Something is given to meet that person's need. So as we discuss benevolence this morning... Let's consider this to be our definition. Good or kind works to meet the needs of others. So why should you care about this subject today? Why is this subject important enough for us to devote an entire lesson on a Sunday morning, no less, talking about it? Well, as you will see from the passages that we will read this morning, we have a responsibility to be benevolent people. The we, obviously, I'm referring to are Christians, those who have put on Christ in baptism and are faithfully following the commands of Jesus. The Bible says that benevolence is a characteristic of the righteous. It is a practice that you can observe in those who are righteous. The bottom line is this, benevolence is expected of the Christian. Let me give an analogy once again of why this message is important for each and every one of us to hear this morning. In the workplace, many of us probably have yearly reviews that we participate in. I know Brad mentioned that the other day in his his message where our performance is evaluated, our performance on the job, and we're evaluated against the goals that the company has set for you. Now, if I don't know what those goals are at the beginning of the year, I'm at a big disadvantage when it comes time to review at the end of the year. 
I may be unwisely spending my time doing things that are not in the best interest of the company. On the other hand, if I know the goals of the company, and if I know the goals that are set for my position, that helps me focus on the right activities and to help ensure that I will have a good review at the end of the year. Well, in the same way, if there is something that I'm supposed to be devoted to as a Christian, I want to know what it is. I want someone to tell me if I'm not doing it right so I can make the necessary corrections in my life. And that is why I believe this message is important for all of us to hear this morning. In this message, we will find direction from God's word to be benevolent people. And although, as I said before, the word benevolent that we're studying this morning isn't specifically found in the King James translation throughout the, throughout the Bible, I believe that we can see the spirit of benevolence exhibited. So this morning, we will take time to read through several of those passages and stop and make comments on each in order to better understand the subject. And so for the sake of time, we obviously won't read everything that is there in the Bible on the subject, but I believe we will read enough to understand the principles of benevolence and understand the responsibility that we have as Christians. So we'll start out making our way into the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus is a book that describes the old law that was given to the Jews. We're going to look at Leviticus 19 here in just a moment, Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. But in Leviticus, we can read of the law telling the Jews how to approach God, how to be acceptable to God, and how to live holy lives. And so Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, we can read direction that God gave so that the poor of the land would be provided for. It reads, and when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of the harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard, thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. So we find here that those who were landowners, those who planted crops, had specific instructions for the harvest. When it came time for the harvest, they were permitted to harvest all of the crop, except the corners of the fields. The corners of the fields were to be left unharvested, untouched, so that the poor or those in need and the stranger, the foreigner, could work the land and feed themselves from those crops. God also instructed that when gathering the fruit from the vineyard, they should not go over the field a second time to gather the remaining fruit that was left behind. He said that all that remains after that first pass should be left behind for the poor. Leviticus 23 and 22 teaches the same as it says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest. Neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of the harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So once again here we read and we understand that a portion of the harvest, the corners of the field, was set aside for the poor and the stranger so that they could work and eat. In the text we also see that if the poor or the stranger wanted to eat, the expectation was that they would work. For their food. The corners of the fields were left unharvested, and the gleaning was left behind. 
giving the poor the opportunity to put in the effort and work the fields for their food. Now we see the practice of this law exhibited in the book of Ruth. For the sake of time, we won't read all of the related verses in the book of Ruth, but I certainly encourage you to go and read the first two chapters of the book of Ruth to see the full picture and also to confirm the things that I'm saying this morning. Summarizing from Ruth, we can read of Naomi, her husband, and their two sons leaving the land of Judah, leaving their home to go live in the land of Moab because of a famine that was in the land. There was a shortage of food. However, in the course of time after living in Moab, we learned that Naomi's husband died. But she still, said she still had her two sons with her who had married women from the land of Moab. However, as time passed, Naomi's two sons also died. As you can probably imagine, life was pretty difficult for widows. So Naomi planned to return to her homeland of Judah, and she encouraged her two daughters-in-law to return to their families there in the land of Moab. And we can read that one daughter-in-law did return to her family, but the Bible says that Ruth stayed with Naomi as she returned to her home in Bethlehem. In chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, we can read that upon getting back to Bethlehem, Ruth went out to glean the fields, for it was harvest time. She was able to gather for herself corn as she worked behind the laborers that were harvesting the crop. Now let's note that Ruth was a foreigner. She was from Moab. But she was allowed to gather for herself behind these laborers, according to the law that we read earlier. Boaz, the owner of the field, noticed Ruth gathering. And he instructed his workers to show kindness to her. In this instance, we see the law we read earlier being practiced. And we see kindness being shown to the poor and strangers or foreigners in the land. In Deuteronomy, where the law was restated for that generation of Jews that was about to enter the promised land, Deuteronomy 15 summarizes the mindset that the Jews were to have towards the poor and those in need. As verse 8 and verse 15, verse 11, excuse me, teach. But thou shalt open thine, thine hand wide unto him and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need and that which he wanted. And in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 15, it says, For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thy hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in thy land. So these verses here teach the Jews that there's always going to be poor people in the land. Therefore, God says that they should be open-handed. Open-handed as opposed to tight-fisted. God expected his people to be generous towards the poor. And so from these passages here in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we can understand from the old law that God's people were commanded to set aside or leave behind crop from their own fields for the poor. Also, to, we read of a call for generosity to the poor and those in need. Now, moving on to similar passages in the New Testament, we can start out with the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. We're going to look at verse 42 in just a moment. But beginning at verse 42, the context is Jesus speaking on the subject of retaliation. Leading up to verse 42, Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say that you resist not evil. 
In other words, don't be fighting back when you've been wronged. You should accept being wronged and turn the other cheek. Give them your coat. Go to second mile rather than retaliate. And then in verse 42, Jesus says, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. So in context, Jesus is saying that we should be all the ready to give to those who ask for help and to not refuse help even to those who we would consider to be our enemies. He's saying here, don't return evil for evil. Our natural response probably is to retaliate. The expected response is to return evil for evil for those that dished it out. But Jesus teaches that we should give and help when we are in position to help. 1 John 3, we're going to look at 17 and 18. The context of this passage is John speaking about the love that Christians should have for one another. In fact, he says in verse 14 that we know that we have passed from death to life when we have love for our brothers. Having brotherly love for one another is one of the ways that we can perform a self-check or a self-test or an evaluation of ourselves and know that we are living as God desires. He says that Christ exemplified love for us when he laid down his life for us. Therefore, we should be ready to make sacrifices for one another. And then in verse 17 and 18 of 1 John 3, reading from the English Standard, it says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If our love for one another is real, there should be no way that we see a brother in need and not have compassion for them. Our love isn't displayed in compassionate words, in flowery, beautiful words. It is displayed through action. If we see brothers and sisters in need, we need to take action to meet their needs. And John even questions the person who doesn't have compassion and says, does the love of God truly dwell in you? In other words, you just might be a liar if you don't have sympathy for your brothers and sisters that are in need. Moving on to the book of Ephesians, we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 28. Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus. And in the fourth chapter, he writes how Christians should live and how we should conduct ourselves. In verse 1 of chapter 4, he says that we should walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. As followers of Christ, the life we live should be on a whole other level. We should be living in such a way that we bring glory and honor to God's name. But moving down to verse 28, he says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. So Paul right here writes here that we need to do honest work so that one, we can meet our own needs, but also be in position to help others that are in need. This reinforces that work is a good thing. I know sometimes, you know, you, you maybe imagine, oh, if I could, uh, you know, come into money, I can I relax and quit work and live a life of leisure. But we see here that Paul teaches that the money we earn isn't just for us to lavish on ourselves, lavish all the proceeds on ourselves. We should be 
considering of others and even setting aside so that we are in position to help, uh, help others when the opportunity is presented. We saw this principle in the Old Testament when we read about the law. They call for leaving portions of your fields unharvested. And here we read it, the principle in the New Testament, the principle of setting aside for those in need. Looking on to the book of James, we're going to look at chapter 1 and verse 27. And it reads, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The action of visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction or time of need we find here is linked to religion in its purest and undefiled form. Think of the original audience and when this was written. Widows, women with no family, children with no parents were at a severe disadvantage in those times. And quite frankly, it's, it's the same today. Except perhaps we have, you know, government social programs that can help. But back then, not the case. James says that undefiled or pure religion is being concerned with the need of others, such as these widows and orphans. The word visiting here isn't just referring to a stop by to say hello, but it's a concern for them. It is recognizing that they have unmet needs and doing something to meet those needs. While we're here in the book of James, we're going to jump down to chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. Reading from the English Standard, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James here is speaking on the subject of faith and the activity to back it up or proving the existence of your faith by your actions. He's basically saying here that faith with no proof to accompany it isn't a living faith, but instead is a dead or non-existent faith. If there are brothers and sisters that don't have clothing, that don't have food, and the extent of your support is essentially lip service or not making an effort to meet their needs, then your very faith is called into question. Your lack of faith is revealed by your actions when there is someone in need and you don't step up to the plate to help. So from the several passages we've read, the Bible teaches us to be ready to help those in need, even being careful to not return evil for evil, but instead to help those who we may even consider to be our enemies if they ask for help. We've read that our love is demonstrated and our faith is displayed by our benevolent actions. And also we read that as we labor for ourselves, the Bible teaches that we should be diligent to set aside or save so that we are prepared to help those who are in need when we have the opportunity to help. So now that we understand basically what the Bible teaches on benevolence, let us look to see benevolence in action in a couple passages in the Bible as we see benevolence practice. We're going to first look to Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Acts 11, 27 through 30. 
pause for a moment. Your page is flipping. All right, and it says, In these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dart throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man, according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So prior to these verses that we just read, we learned that Barnabas and Saul spent a year at the church in the city of Antioch in Syria, teaching the people there with great success. And then we learned that the prophets from Jerusalem came to Antioch and they met with the Christians there. One of the prophets we read, of his name was Agabus. And he was led by the Spirit to reveal that a dart or a famine was coming. And it was going to impact the Roman world. This was all going to happen in the days of Claudius Caesar, who reigned from 41 AD to 54 AD. So the Bible says that the Christians there at the church in Syria, in Antioch, which by the way was composed of many Gentiles, they decided to do something about it. They determined, as verse 29 says, according to their ability, according to their financial situation, to send relief to the Christians who lived in Judea to help during this famine. An opportunity for benevolence was presented. A great famine is coming. There's going to be a lot of people hit hard by this. There were Christians that probably had set aside something and they were prepared to give with this opportunity, each according to his ability to give to those who were in need. Some surely gave a lot. Some probably gave a little. Some may not have been in position to give, but the Christians were prepared. And the Bible says that they gave when the opportunity was presented. Looking to another example of benevolence, the setting we're going to read about here is the early days of the church in Jerusalem. The Bible says that Many were in Jerusalem, and it says that the people were of one heart and one soul, and great grace was upon them all. So picking up at verse 34 in Acts chapter 4, the Bible says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So of all these Christians that were there in Jerusalem meeting, we learned that there were none that lacked the necessities. There were some, the Bible says, who owned land, some who owned houses, and they willingly sold their possessions and brought the money and laid it down at the apostles' feet. And the Bible says that the apostles distributed unto everyone according to their needs. We see benevolence here in the generosity of those who sold their possessions voluntarily to help those who were in need. But we also see that somebody had to handle the distribution of the funds. How do you think the apostles handled the distribution? I doubt that they counted the number of people in need, divided the full amount of money by that number and just gave it out like that. We read here that it was distributed according to need. So judgment calls had to be made. The apostles had to assess the individual situations, determine that this person is going to 
get X amount. This person's going to get Y amount because of the needs that they have. So what's the point? The point is when we give today, we also must make judgment calls. We have to assess individual situations, determine what is appropriate to give. But the reality is there are more people in need than the resources that we have to give. So we have to make wise or judicious decisions in our giving. And sometimes we're going to make the wrong call. There are times when I've been approached by someone in need or they claim they're in need and I'm in position to give. So I listen to the request and I wonder, is this story really real or am I getting conned? I only have so much time to investigate and ask questions. So I try to follow the advice that was given to me. That when I'm in that kind of situation, it's better to err on the side of giving, meaning prefer to give to someone who doesn't need it rather than we withhold from someone who really doesn't need it. And that means that sometimes we're going to get used. Sometimes we're going to get played. We're going to get tricked. We're going to get conned. We're going to get the people who really have no need and we're going to get the people who have found a way to live off the generosity of others. We can do our due diligence to give in the right situations, but I don't think it's profitable for us to dwell in those times when we get taken advantage of. Instead, we should give with the right, the sincere motivation and be content with our service to God and let God deal with those who have chosen to be dishonest. One more example of benevolence in action is told to us by Jesus in Luke chapter 10. For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize it. But the context was there was a lawyer discussing with Jesus how to inherit eternal life. What do I do to get to heaven? So the lawyer expresses that he knew that it called for loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength with all our mind. And they also knew that it called for loving our neighbor as ourselves. However, however, the Bible says that he tried to justify himself. And he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So it appears that perhaps this lawyer had his own narrow definition of who his neighbor was. Perhaps his definition consisted of those who I have close relationships with, just my family, just my friends. We don't know. But we see that he asked Jesus to define who is truly my neighbor. And Jesus responded by telling the account of the Good Samaritan. Jesus said, there was a certain man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he was attacked by thieves. The thieves stole all the man had. They wounded him and they left him dying in a road that he traveled on. And as he lay dying on the road, Jesus says that two people passed by him. Two people who you would most likely expect to help their fellow man in such a position. A priest and a Levite. But Jesus said that the priest saw the dying man and passed by on the other side of the road. The Levite, I'd say maybe he did a little bit better. And that he actually stopped to examine the man. But he refrained from helping, and he also continued his journey as he passed by and left the man to die in the road. But Jesus tells of a Samaritan, 
Now, if you'll recall, there's some background here we'll need to get into. There was a wall of division between the Jews and the Samaritans. These ill feelings went all the way back to the days of Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the dividing of the kingdom, north and the south. Jeroboam perverted the worship of those that lived in the northern kingdom and whose capital city was Samaria. Many years later, as the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, there was much intermarriage between the Jews there and the foreigners that were brought in to populate the land. These things served to dilute their Jewish heritage and help to further divide them from their brothers in the southern kingdom to the point that they despised and hated one another. So with that background, Jesus says that a Samaritan man was on his journey that brought him by this man dying in the road. The the Samaritan saw the man in need. Jesus said that he had compassion on him. The Samaritan saw a need and he did all he could to address it. He delayed his journey. He bandaged the man's wounds. He transported the man to an inn. He cared for the man there at the inn and then he paid the innkeeper for the continued care of the man. And the account ends with Jesus asking the lawyer of these three people, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, who do you think truly exhibited the characteristic of being a neighbor? The Samaritan. The one that they would have least likely expected to render aid was benevolent. So Jesus charged the lawyer to go forth and be like the Samaritan. In the account of the Good Samaritan, Jesus teaches a number of principles that we can note this morning. We can note that the priest nor the Levite seized this opportunity to serve God by serving their neighbor. Jesus said that the Samaritan man was on a journey. He was on his way somewhere, but he delayed his journey. He put his own plans on hold. His plans were disrupted. It would have been easier for him to be like the priest and Levite just to pass by and keep on going. You got things to do. But he put his plans on hold to help his fellow man. And in the same way in our own lives, showing benevolence won't always be convenient. It won't always come at the right time. It won't always happen when you have a good break. But we understand what our responsibility is. The Samaritan was properly motivated to help. For Jesus said that he saw the man hurt. And he had compassion on him. He cared for this man who was dying on the side of the road. Now I imagine that if this happened somewhere else, if it happened in Jerusalem, this man was dying dying somewhere in Jerusalem and there was a crowd of people there to witness the actions, maybe then the priest would have stopped. Maybe then the Levite would have stopped. They probably would have stopped in to render aid, but with no audience, with no one to see, No glory to be had. They pass by on the other side. Of course, that's speculating. Who knows? The right motivation brings about the right benevolent action. The Samaritan was properly motivated by love and compassion and concern for his fellow man. And that is the same way we must be when doing good to others. Motivated to do good to our fellow man and glorify God with our actions. Motivated by compassion. Motivated with love to help our fellow man, motivated to glorify God. And life opportunities arise 
where we can truly make a difference. And we should take advantage of those opportunities as the Samaritan did. For we are serving God when we do these things. And we are serving God and God does not forget our labor. As Hebrews 6 and 10 says, God is not unrighteous or unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God sees and honors our service. So at this point, we've defined benevolence. We've looked at a couple examples from scripture to better understand it. Now let us take a moment to look at a few different aspects of benevolence. So for our consideration, we will now turn to the sixth chapter in the book of Galatians. And we'll pick up at verse 9. Look at verse 9 and 10. Galatians 6, 9 and 10. And the Bible says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. This passage teaches that when we have the means and the opportunity, we are charged to do good to all. But notice here, it's especially to those who are in the household of faith. This passage defines a priority for our benevolence. As we have the means, as we have the opportunity, we should be willing to do good to all, but especially to those who are in the church. Now, I liken this, or I compare this to the way we probably run our own households. If I'm looking to help someone in some way, first, I'm going to make sure my responsibilities are taken care of, that my mortgage is paid, that my bills are paid, that my children are fed, that we're clothed. Before I start looking around to put money elsewhere. Well, in the same way, we are part of the family of God. When there is someone in this congregation, in this church that needs help, we should prioritize taking care of our church family. Now, obviously, good judgment is required here because I could easily deceive myself and withhold giving to anybody until all my wishes, all my desires, until I get that boat, until I get that nice patio like Brad, until I get all that stuff, I could easily withhold. So, well, you know, I'm, I, I can't help anybody. I, I got plenty of things I got to get. Sometimes it requires choosing to go without in my, in my household. And choosing to help others is the right call. And that is where we use our good judgment and wisdom. And if you don't have that wisdom, we're counseling to pray to God for it. And as verse 9 said, there is also the tendency to become weary in our well-doing. Doing good to others takes effort. It can be tiring, trying to use good judgment, to use wisdom, to help people in the right way. Despite the challenges, despite the difficulties, but despite the work it takes, we do it. Recognizing that we are blessed to be in a position to give and we recognize that it is our responsibility. Now let's turn over to 1 Timothy 5. We're going to read the fourth verse of 1 Timothy 5 to examine another aspect of benevolence. 1 Timothy 5 and 4. And it says, But if any widow have children or nephews, let them, referring to the children or nephews, first to show piety at home. And to requite their parents. For that is good 
and acceptable before God. These are words from the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy as he served the church in Ephesus. So first, let's define two words that were used here that may be part of, uh, not of your everyday vocabulary, at least not mine. The word piety means showing honor or respect. And the word requite means to give back or restore. So Paul is speaking of honoring widows of the church and caring for their needs. He's teaching that the children or the family members of the widow should fulfill their responsibilities in taking care of their own household by tending to the needs of their family member. And he goes on in verse 8 to say, But if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And then further in verse 16, he says, If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them. And let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. So basically we read here, it is a shame if someone is not taking care of his own family. When Christians neglect the care of widows and their own family, the burden of that care falls on the church. Paul says that people that neglect their own needy family members have essentially denied the faith and are worse than unbelievers. For even unbelievers take care of their own. What we see here is the responsibility of the family to take care of one another. At least we're looking at the physical family here. And he ended by saying that those who are truly widows with no living family to support them are eligible to be permanently supported by the church. But it should be a last resort. If there is family that can support the widow, that should occur so that the church is not burdened. So as we are looking for opportunities to practice benevolence, sometimes we don't have to look any further than our own families and recognize the responsibility that we have towards them. Now let us consider those unique circumstances where benevolence should be withheld or denied. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. You can look at the 10th verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, and it says, For even when we were with you, this is Paul speaking, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So these are words of Paul's who wrote to the church there in Thessalonica. Beginning of verse 6, Paul commands the entire church on how they should conduct themselves. He wrote that they should withdraw their fellowship from those who claim to be Christians, but were undisciplined in their faith, undisciplined in the way they lived. And he goes on to remind them of the time that he lived there with them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 9, we can read where Paul worked day and night so that he wouldn't be a burden to the church there. As an apostle, he had the right to be supported by the church. But he did not exercise this right. But he supported himself. And he told them to follow his example. And he said, if there are any that are able to work, but refuse to do so, so they should also be refused support from others. So Paul teaches that as we show benevolence, we don't have the responsibility to take care of those who are unwilling to work. Unfortunately, as I said before, there are some who are manipulating the system. Those who are looking for a handout, those who have found a way to milk the system and get all they can. 
Instead of being responsible for themselves, they seek out others to take care of them, others to feed them, others to house them, others to clothe them, others to pay their light and gas bill, and so on. And as Paul alluded to, help isn't always given to people exactly what they ask for. Sometimes the best help that you can give is helping someone to recognize their own responsibilities. Some people have to get a little hungry before they realize their responsibility to work and provide for themselves. My last comment on this verse before we move on to next is more of an opinion or things that I have observed, so take it as that. It's my opinion. Life isn't always black and white or clear-cut. The easy decisions are clear-cut and easy when there's clearly a right way and a wrong way. The harder decisions are, as you say, in the gray. In this context, there are reasons why people don't work and reasons why people cannot provide for themselves. Some are voluntary, like just refusing to do what is right and appropriate, which is what I believe this verse addresses. In the cases like that, sure, withhold benevolence. It's appropriate. But some cases of people not working is involuntary. Mental issues, sickness, and other things that prevent people who may look or even seem to be able-bodied that prevent them from properly functioning in society. In situations like these, all I can say is we should seek wisdom from God to guide us in our benevolence. Let us now make our way to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at the first four verses of Matthew chapter 6. These passages here talks on the motivation and method of benevolence. And this is Jesus speaking here in Matthew 6. Beginning at verse 1, he says, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou hast do thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, that they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. These are the words of Jesus as he uses the example of the Pharisees to teach how we should give. The word alms that is used in verse 1 is, means an act of kindness or compassion, benevolence. So Jesus is speaking about giving and is speaking on the motives that we have when we do it. He cautions that we don't do it with the desire to be seen. That we don't blow the trumpets, as he says, to get as much attention as possible. When we do it to receive the praise, the glory of men, Jesus says that we have our reward right there. The praise and admonition that we receive from our fellow man is all we're going to get. Instead, Jesus says that we should be as we would say, discreet in our giving, keeping it between us and God. The whole world doesn't need to know what you're doing. And I'm sure you've seen some of these videos on social media where people record themselves helping out a homeless man or they record themselves doing some benevolent gesture. And I oftentimes wonder, okay, what's, what's the motivation for putting this? Is it to pat myself on the back and let everybody see how sincere and good I am? Who knows, but it, it makes me think of this passage here. As Jesus says, we don't need to bring attention to ourselves. Do your giving discreetly and know that our Heavenly Father sees and rewards. 
But before we move on, I want to emphasize that Jesus is teaching about what motivates us to give. He's not teaching that we should only be giving anonymously, and that is the sin for people to know that you have given to a cause. I mean, we can look to Acts 4 and 34 through 37 of those who sold their possessions. We just read about this. Those who sold their possessions, they laid the proceeds at the feet of the apostles so distribution could be made to the poor. Surely everyone saw what was happening. The Bible even highlights Barnabas who sold his land for the same cause. What Jesus is teaching here is motivation. If our motives are evil, if we are seeking the attention of men, if we are seeking praise, if we are seeking recognition in our giving, then we're in error. Just as Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 did when they lied about the amount of their giving and they were struck dead, they clearly had different motivations than everyone else who was selling their land. And God's judgment on them was swift. And it stands as an example for us to study today. So what is the right motivation? Verse 3 says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. One commentator I read said, he, he describes this as a picture of a man passing by someone on the street in need. And with his right hand, he gives to the person in need in a quiet manner. His left hand doesn't even know what's going on. Glorifying God in our giving and not glorifying ourselves is the appropriate motivation. Jesus said that giving done in this manner is openly rewarded by God. I don't know how we're rewarded, but I trust God at his word. Looking on to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, we're going to pick up at verse 17. This is Paul's direction to Timothy. And he said, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may hold, lay hold on eternal life. So Timothy is commanded to teach the rich. First off, let's determine who are the rich. Now I've heard a definition said that uh, anybody who has more than me is rich because I don't feel rich. And I know that statement is said in a joking manner, but on a serious note, I venture to say that each one of us in here is rich. If you woke up in a cool house this morning, if you had a meal last night and a meal this morning, if you have sufficient clothing on, if you have the necessities of life for contentment, but we have so much more than that. If you had transportation to get here this morning, whether it was a car or even a bus, you had transportation. We have money to spend for pleasure, for enjoyment, for entertainment. I'm well off enough that I'm not worried about, am I going to be able to eat this afternoon? Am I going to be able to eat breakfast tomorrow? Or tomorrow? Or next week? As a matter of fact, I'm saving money now that for, uh, now for the life that I may live 20 plus years from now, if God allows me to live that long and retire from my career. So I think that probably qualifies. Yeah, I'm pretty rich. I don't need to belabor this point. I think you all get it. I think we all understand that in comparison to so many in the world, wealth-wise, living in the United States, we hit the jackpot. We are at the top. We're very near the top. So we can safely assume that this passage applies to us. And Paul says that we should not be high-minded, not prideful or arrogant because of our wealth. We should not trust in our wealth. 
that is so uncertain for disaster to wipe it all out today and we're broke tomorrow. Just like Job who suffered. Rather, he says, our trust should be in God who has blessed us with all these things to enjoy. But God blessed us not to hoard what we have, not to store it away, or just be devoted to uh, pampering and comforting ourselves. He says that we should do good with what we have. He says we should be rich or abounding in good works or benevolence. We should be ready to distribute or give from our wealth. We should be willing to communicate or be generous in our giving. We are expected to do good with our wealth and be a blessing to others. And when we use our wealth in that manner, not only are we helping those in need, but we are storing up, as the Bible says, a good foundation for the future. Our actions and our devotion to good works show that we recognize that God gave it to us, for he owns it all anyway. Our hope and trust is in God and not in uncertain riches. Therefore, we should be generous in our giving. And now finally, we have come to the last passage for our consideration this morning. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And it is here where Jesus speaks about the final judgment. Jesus speaks of himself being on the throne. And all mankind is before him, divided, just like a shepherd divides his his sheep from the goats. The righteous or the sheep will be on his right side and the unrighteous or the goats are on his left. To the righteous, Jesus says, Come, ye blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For when I was hungry, you gave me meat. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. And upon hearing these words, the righteous said, or they asked, Lord, when did we see you in these conditions? For the righteous didn't realize that they had served the Lord during their lifetime. They were simply serving and expecting no reward. And Jesus responds, he says, when you did it for the least of my brethren, you did it for me. However, on the flip side, to the unrighteous, to those on his left, he says, depart from me, you cursed, and the everlasting fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. If I was hungry and you didn't give me food, I was thirsty and you, didn't get, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you gave me no clothes. Sick and in prison, but you never visited to minister to my needs. And in the same way, they respond. They ask, Lord, when did we see you like this? How do we miss you? The Lord, the righteous judge, responds. When you refuse to do it for the least of my brethren, you refuse it to me. The unrighteous neglected to do what they had the means and the opportunity to do. These are the words of Jesus. He helps us to see that when we minister to the needs of our fellow man, we are serving him. In all of our service and our benevolence, we ultimately are serving God. Now we see that this type of benevolent work is part of the lifestyle of the righteous as they were feeding, as they were clothing, as they were visiting, as they were ministering to the needs of people. They weren't single acts of service. But it was a lifestyle. Jesus helps us to see that this is one of the apparent differences between those that will enter heaven and those that won't. Benevolence is something that we should all be devoted to. The passage reads as if it was a regular part of their lives. And in our service, we are serving God not to obtain salvation. We're not doing this to obtain salvation. 
We've already obtained that because of our obedience and faith to the commands of Jesus. But we're doing this because we are saved, because we are righteous. May benevolence be a part of our lifestyle. So as the rest of your clothes, I realize I've run a little long today. I just want to offer a few practical tips for benevolence before we wrap up. Just a few things that I've learned or things that have helped me and my family in our service to God. Now, preface this. I'm not holding myself up as an example because there are many ways that I fall short. But if these examples serve to help you or encourage you uh, in any way, then by mentioning them have served a purpose. Uh, I would say make benevolence a practice. Strive to make benevolent works a habit or something that you regularly do. For we know that there always will be poor people in need. Some people will always be in need because of circumstances, you know, death of the breadwinner of the family, uh, widows, uh, or, or but even because of their own choices. The point being, there's always going to be people in need, so we need to make benevolence a regular part of our lifestyle. Uh, one way you can be prepared financially is to put benevolence in your budget. Assuming you have a monthly budget where you, you uh, set aside so much for mortgage, so much for groceries, so much for fuel, Consider setting aside a certain amount for benevolence in your monthly budget. We have found that setting aside in that way forces us to look for opportunities to use it. It helps or reminds us to consider that there are people in need, people in our lives that may have unmet needs. Is there a trial that I know that someone's going through? Is there something that I'm aware of? It makes me consider family members, consider are there things that I've, I've recognized or heard somebody say? Having that money there forces me to think about it each month as I'm going through paying the bills and things like that. So setting aside in our budget also has allowed us to involve our children in benevolent works. I remember last year during the uh, days of the pandemic, and we were watching the news, and I was seeing a segment about the North Texas Food Bank. And the amount of food that they were giving away was just, just so much, and, and how they, they needed people to donate. And so the family, we talked about it, and we decided, hey, let's, let's take some of this benevolence money and give it to the North Texas Food Bank. It, it seemed to be the right thing to do at the time. I can say that earlier in my Christian life, this wasn't the mindset that I had. I felt that my benevolence was handled uh, by writing a check to the congregation because the church we attended at the time uh, had several works going on where we helped attend to the needs of uh, those in Dallas, the, the, the uh, people downtown, shelters, things like that. So I felt, hey, I write a check. That's my benevolent work. In maturity, I learned that's not appropriate. Through things like this, through study, I learned that I have a personal responsibility. I would have considered myself to be a very benevolent person at the time because I gave to the church. But I now realize that I said uh, I have a responsibility to look out for opportunities uh, to be benevolent in my life. And it's great to be involved in benevolent works as a congregation, but we have responsibilities as individuals. And so I say shame on myself for shirking that responsibility when I had the resources, I had the time, I had the opportunities, but I refrained. As individuals, we are on the front lines, interfacing with the world each and every day, and opportunities for benevolence are there. So be ready. And, and lastly, another way to be prepared is to recognize what currency you have to give. As I mentioned earlier, I believe we, we are fluent when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world. Therefore, $20, $50, dollars in my monthly budget may not severely affect me. It's not going to stop me from going out to eat tonight. It's not going to stop that. And so that may be the currency that I have to give. I should use that. But for others, time may be your currency. Perhaps you're retired. You have time during the week to visit and encourage. So give in that way. 
For others, perhaps prayer is your currency. For others, perhaps a listening ear is your currency. Whatever position you are in, use your currency or your currencies to serve God in your best ability. And so that brings us to a close. As I said in the beginning, the study of this subject was a personal thing to me. Uh, to answer some questions that I had, some things that I had seen and I was questioning. And so I devoted myself to the study. And I hope that this study uh, presented this lesson has been profitable for you. And you've benefited from being here this morning. Uh, I know we didn't specifically speak about, speak about salvation, but the invitation will always be offered for anyone who has a desire to be added to the kingdom of God today. For God, his love for us was benevolent to us in that he gave his son. He gave his son as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of all mankind, that our sins would be forgiven. And in obedience to his commands, we find forgiveness. We find hope for eternal life, hope for heaven. If you're ready to turn from your sins and turn to God today, we invite you to come forward, come to the front row. We will certainly uh, baptize you if you're desired, or we'll continue to study you and help you understand all that God requires of you. Uh, we invite you to come forward at this time. If you have any of the requests of the church, you can make it known at this time as we sing the selected song.